Plutarch Podcast. I'm Tom Cox, your host from Grammaticus.co, and today we're going to finish up the life of Lycurgus. We're going to primarily be studying two things that don't seem to fit Lycurgus himself, but rather the focus of the latter half of the life of Lycurgus is the society he created, the Sparta that he created that lasted for hundreds of years and was undefeated in battle until the Thebans embarrassed them publicly. And so there's two elements of that. There's sort of the beginning and the end. The beginning is called the agoge. That's the training period. That's what turns a young boy after the age of seven and up to the age of about 18 into a Spartan citizen, into a full-fledged citizen soldier willing to fight, win, and die for Sparta. The second aspect is the end. It's those 28 men who get elected to the gerousia, the influence they have, the authority they have, and the way that in representing the best of the best of Sparta, they show us a lot more about what it means to be Spartan. As always, thanks for the download. Share this with your friends if you're enjoying learning along with me about Plutarch, and we'll dive right in. Let's go. And so what are the elements of the agoge? Well, they're kind of cool. Some of them are fun to talk about, and some are really sad. So the boys are put into military squadrons, and they eat, play, study, and exercise together. The best boy is given leadership. He's put in charge. And as Plutarch says, this has the natural result that the entire education becomes training in obedience. The question I ask is obedience to whom and why. But so the older men will make sure that the boys fight in order to test the boys' courage, their character, their spirit, their resolve. They want to see them in action fighting against each other. But it's typical of the way boys fight. The fight often breeds more respect for the other boy after you're done. They only learn enough reading and writing to get by. And they really want them to learn to obey, to learn indifference to hardship and pain, and to fight to win. Those are Spartan virtues. By the age of 12, they are only allowed one outer garment in the winter. I looked up the average low temperatures for Sparta nowadays, and it it gets to about 39 degrees at night in the dead of winter, the coldest month. It's January. They're not allowed to bathe, and they have to make their own beds and sleep outside during that time. Well, that's going to make any 12-year-old I know pretty tough. All men, as I said earlier, consider themselves fathers, tutors, guardians of the boys. There is never a time when the boys can't be watched or corrected by an elder, by an adult in the room. And, but there's also an official superintendent of education he's in charge of the entire agoge process and he's called the paidonomos which means the the lawgiver for the children by the time you're 20 years old in this process you're put in charge of the a larger number of those smaller boys groups or squadrons and you have to command them to gather their own wood to make their own fires and steal their own food if you're caught stealing you were beaten and you weren't given the food so that the lesson that you were supposed to derive from that was that you should steal better next time and you shouldn't expect a handout. No one is going to give you anything. My question at this point is, if Plutarch admires this so much, did he raise his own sons this way? We know that he had, I, I think, three sons. But Plutarch also says that too much good food when you're young prevents the growth of tall men. It weighs you down. I'm not sure we agree with that anymore, but it's interesting to think about. 
some other things from the uh, Goge is um, that men would rather die than be caught. Young men would rather die than be caught. There's a boy who's ripped apart by a fox that he's hiding because he wanted to steal it and get away with it in secret. And so he holds the fox close to his chest and stomach and the fox literally rips the boy apart and he dies. Another one is the seize the cheese, I call it. This is my name for it, not Plutarch's, but they would roll the cheese or put a cheese at the end of a, you know, in a temple or some somewhere where the boys knew that they could get it. And then they put two lines of boys on either side and you had to run through the gauntlet of boys who could beat you, whip you, trip you, and do anything they wanted, and you just needed to be tough enough to get to the cheese. Hmm. Yeah. So after dinner, they would also sit around at the Sisitia, right? They would sing songs, answer questions, and they would engage in dialectic. Remember, this is really, Plutarch at the end of the day is a student of Plato and is a philosopher. And so this idea that they engage in dialectic for the betterment of their own souls, Plutarch is a big fan of. The Spartan ideal is to... To be concise, to the point, well-reasoned, comprehensive, and persuasive. Don't say more than you have to. If a boy falls short and says something stupid or wordy or not worth hearing, they bite his thumb. It's not so bad. That seems actually like the, the lightest punishment so far. But the other leaders are watching and looking on and watching over each other to prevent excessive punishment. But uh, then Plutarch gets into the Laconic style. Laconia is the name for the region around Sparta. And their speech patterns become so famous that even in English, we have the adjective laconic, which means to pack a lot of thought into as few words as possible, or to have a simple pithy speech full of valuable ideas. And that's where we get to that Molon Labe that I mentioned on the back of people's trucks. There's some great stories that will be shared in other lives, but I'm going to just tell a few here because they're so fun about the Spartans' ability to respond to questions. They thrive in that short, pithy, punchy response to a question. And a couple that are really famous occur right before the Battle of Thermopylae as the Persian host is marching down. And they're so large, they're drinking the rivers dry as they pass through them. They send messengers to the Spartans. And one of the messengers from Xerxes says, our arrows will block out the sun. And the commander's response is, good, we'll fight in the shade. The last time Xerxes sends his messenger and says, hey, lay down your arms. And the Spartan response is, molon labe, come and get them. Which is exactly why Second Amendment rights advocates are a fan of molon labe. It's punchy, basically means having come, take. Right? But come and get them, I think, is the best translation of that. So we get into this laconic style and we even get some of Lycurgus's laconic retorts. They're, they would be best, best suited for Twitter, right? They're very short. When someone asks Lycurgus why he didn't make a democracy for his polis, he responds with, well, why not try it in your family first? Oh, somebody asks him why they give small sacrifices to the gods. He says, so that we don't run out of things to offer. And... When somebody asks him what are the best exercises for men to get super jacked like a Spartan, he says all of them as long as they don't end up in you raising your hands. Get it? Surrender? Raising your hands above your head? Ha! Good job, Lycurgus. And then when asked, hey, uh, how can we defend ourselves? What's, what's the best way to keep ourselves safe? He says, stay poor and don't want more than your neighbor has. Wow. 
That's powerful. Archaeologically, this is attested in the record. Sparta is not nearly as interesting archaeologically to dig up as other polis like Thebes and Argos, Epidaurus, Corinth, although Corinth is a Roman city because it was burned to the ground. But Sparta is pretty small. It looks and feels small even to the archaeologists who dig it up. The last thing is he's asked, why are there no walls around Sparta? He said, the best defense is a wall of men, not stones. There's another famous report. Plutarch and Xenophon both loved to just compile Spartan sayings. It's almost like a way you could meditate on proverbial wisdom. And one of the Spartans, when asked that question, why doesn't Sparta have a wall? He just pointed to his spear. He didn't say anything. Implying this is Sparta's wall, right? my sphere. Uh, so Plutarch gets so carried away with this. He loves like the, the laconic retorts so much that he just keeps going. And he talks about Leonidas, whose response when somebody says something clever but totally irrelevant is, you hit the bullseye on the wrong target. When people ask Caroleus, the boy that was born at the beginning of this life, like Ergus's nephew, when they ask him, why do the Spartans have so few laws? says men of few words need few laws and there's there's many more but one of my last favorites is how many spartans are there and the response was enough to keep the evil away boom so he goes on and he shares some jokes and some poetry and song but then we get into how the spartans march and prepare for battle and this is sort of when they relax the belt is right before they go into battle so they're they're famous for their long hair and there's a Persian messenger who notices that right before battle is going to begin, the Spartans are basically fixing their hair, which really surprises the Persian general who's about to fight against them. Uh, but like Kyrgyz's thoughts on long hair are also pretty funny. They make a handsome man more handsome and they make an ugly man more terrifying. So, hey, bonus either way. We either want handsome soldiers or terrifyingly ugly ones and long hair serves both purposes. They relaxed their training, went on campaign, and they are known for their piety. So one of the, the links between Lycurgus and his parallel Numa Pompilius is that they, they seem to bring the gods directly into the lives of their citizens, which I'll just call piety for shorthand. But the Spartans become famous in other historians like Herodotus and Thucydides for being unwilling or unable to engage in, in a particular war or battle or problem because they're celebrating a festival and they need to focus on the god or the festival at hand so when the spartans march they slaughter a goat they crown themselves with laurel they play the flute and they march calmly and joyfully into bloody battle as it says in my translation and they engage the enemy without fear or frenzy so this is where we get the idea of the Spartan military machine. They pursue only to cement the victory. So they don't need to kill them all and let the gods sort it out. They immediately want to withdraw. They don't want to lose more men than they have. When we did the, the life of Aristides, we saw Plutarch's respect for the, the Spartan general Pausanias during the Battle of Plataea when Pausanias would not start that battle until the omens were right. To the point that the tallest Spartan lost his life while Pausanias was still trying to get the omens and famously dies saying something like, I regret only that I couldn't fight for Sparta, that I died not fighting. One other aspect of the Spartan lifestyle is their freedom. So it's hard to talk about the scolae or the free 
leisure time that the Spartans have to do things like dialogue after dinner, to do things like train for hours and hours a day. They don't have to do anything else. They work full time on the virtues necessary for making them great warriors, even when they're not at war. So if wealth is worthless, as any Spartan worth his salt would say, and work is for slaves, then they don't have to worry about making a living. They have, they're convinced that anybody who works hard to make his living is really just a slave. He's just not a slave to a master, to a human master. He's a slave to money. There is an element of wisdom in there, and you can see something to admire, even though the entire Spartan system is built on complete control of the slave class. The young men and the older men guard their free time so intensely that they don't end up going to the marketplace at all. They have nothing to shop for. What do they need? They're either at the gym, and remember gymnasium is a Greek word, or they're with their sisitia, right? Their club, their their cohort. So they're either training or they're eating or they're dialoguing. Like Kyrgyz says, this makes them unwilling and unable to live without each other. And then he compares them to bees where everyone lives with a hive. There's a few anecdotes that he tells, and then we get to this election of a man for the Gerousia. So when you are living as a citizen in Sparta and one member of the Gerousia died, everybody who's over the age of 60 is eligible, and the Gerousia puts together a group of contestants. They then gather the assembly of all the Spartan soldiers. So this is the closest we see to the democratic element. If you fight for Sparta, you can vote in Sparta but you're really just voting for the wisest man to be involved in the leadership and legislation of the day-to-day. So the assembly comes together, and there's a group of men that can hear but not see what's going on. And as each of the contestants walks by, the way of voting in Sparta is not with pebbles like it is in Athens or with pot shards like it is in Athens. It's by shouting. The length and the level of your shout decides who you're voting for which reminds you of just one of those amateur comedy acts or something where they hold the ten dollar bill over the head of the person and whoever gets the most cheers gets the ten dollars seems kind of strange to me but then that man who is elected the man who earned the loudest and longest acclaim he's escorted around the city to the gods of all the temples by the young men and the women singing his praises he goes to his sisitia to his cohort meal And eats as normal, but he gets a second helping. He has to set the second helping aside. And when he finishes his meal, he offers it to the most noble woman in the polis. So it's cool that when electing someone to the Gerousia, the whole polis is trying to find who is the man we respect most over 60. And then that man helps the polis see who is the woman that we ought to respect the most right now in the whole polis. It doesn't seem that there is a an age limit on the woman being chosen. So he could choose somebody who was 25 or 35. So anyway, I I think that that captures so much of what the Spartans are trying to do with their lives. The story continues with how to bury the dead. Their familiarity with death makes them unafraid of it. That's a very important thing for a soldier. Spartans are forbidden to travel. So we get the exact opposite of Solon and the Athenians. Remember, Solon and Romulus... These guys had made their city a place for refugees. Sparta says, go away. You're not one of us. (laughs) Like Kyrgyz calls foreigners worse than the plague because they introduce principles contrary to Sparta. So then we get into a willingness to critique the laws. But Plutarch really wants to critique the laws but defend like Kyrgyz. So this is hard for him. One of the ways he's going to do that is by introducing the most disgusting law, the Kryptea, 
and then not blaming Lycurgus for it, saying that it's a barbaric custom that was introduced later. So what is the Kryptea? Kryptea, you may know the word cryptic or crypt, it means secret or hidden. It was this way of sending out the young men during their agoge training, right towards the end. It was in some ways considered a capstone. And they had to kill a helot secretly and not be discovered. So the helots, when they walked back from the farms or from their long day of work, wherever it was they were coming from, and walked back to their homes, they knew that at any moment, basically, they could be jumped by a Spartan teenager and killed as a rite of passage. Whenever an E4 is elected, one of those five guys with veto power, they, as part of their oath, declare war on the helots. This is to make it so that whatever a Spartan does to a helot isn't considered murder. So they have a systematic and almost a religious way of dehumanizing the helots to make them fully aware that they're property. I mean, at this point, Plutarch even tells the story of Thucydides where they take the helots who have served the best and the most bravely in, you know, the helots often go to war as assistants or helpers in the camp and those who have served best at home in the field or wherever they are and they crown them and bring them around the city and then all of those helots who were chosen as the best disappear they're killed and so it was a way for the spartans to select the best and prevent them from becoming the leaders in a future revolt so there's other cruelty to helots they'll often force them to become drunk so that the spartans can see how ugly drunkenness is and finally, Plutarch closes with a really, I think, one of the most powerful quotes in the life of Lycurgus that there was no one more free than the free Spartan and no one more enslaved than the Spartan helot. And Plutarch just finds it hard to believe that the gods would ever approve of this. And so he says, clearly, they didn't and couldn't. But his reforms take root. Let's say he doesn't do the Kryptea and he does everything else that we've mentioned so far. Plutarch really approves of a number of things that we would struggle with, particularly in the laws of marriage and in, depending on how you understand the pederasty relationships between older men and younger men, there are a lot of things that would sit uncomfortably with us. But as I said, these reforms take root and Lycurgus decides it's time to leave the stage. He goes to Delphi double checks if there's anything else to do, makes the Spartans swear that they're going to keep the laws until he returns, and then starves himself to death so that he never returns. So very different than Solon, who just asked them to keep the laws for 10 years as an experiment, and then if they still like them, they can keep them. But Plutarch makes the point that from Solon, we're going to see several more reforms of the Athenian democracy. And it's really going to change almost every generation after Solon, including tyranny immediately after, and then ultimately democratic restoration in a more extreme form. What Plutarch admires the most is that, at least according to him, the Spartan glory and the Spartan constitution live on for 500 years, which finally ends under King Aegis during and after the Peloponnesian War. So he's going to blame Lysander, which is an important other life that we'll get to in future seasons. Lysander is the first one who brought the greatness and wealth of conquest into Sparta, and so ruined them by introducing, you guessed it, jealousy, vice, and luxury. We also get, I said it was a great beginning. I think there's a really awesome end here to Lycurgus's life because he really wants to emphasize exactly how much influence the Spartans had. He says when the Greeks ask the Spartans for help, they don't ask for money, they don't ask for ships, and they don't even ask for soldiers. They don't want Spartan mercenaries. They want Spartan generals. The Syracusans ask for Gylippus. Agesilaus serves in Egypt. Lysander serves in Asia Minor. 
Brasidas serves up north in Amphipolis. And then the Spartans will also send out, for the small time that they are running an empire, the Harmosts, which comes from, according to Plutarch, Harmadzo, to harmonize. They need to harmonize the elements of balance. And so Lycurgus looks to create a polis that finds that harmony. And so he ends really powerfully by critiquing one of his intellectual heroes and forebears. He says that even though Plato's Plato, Diogenes, and Zeno, three famous philosophers of three very different schools, agree with Lycurgus on so many aspects of government, the only thing they left behind were books and lectures. And Lycurgus left behind a polis. And so there's an element where, even though we will admire the philosophers that influenced Lycurgus or Numa or Pericles or Dion or Brutus, those are some of the lives I can think of, where a philosopher plays an important role in the education of that man. In spite of that, those men who produce great poles or encourage great citizens are the ones that deserve more credit than Plato. That about wraps it for this double-wide episode on Lycurgus. There's so much more that could be said about Sparta, but I hope this was a really good introduction to Lycurgus and his reforms. Remember, you can find more information about the podcast at grammaticus.co slash podcast, or you can go to plutarch.life to find a specific episode. If you already know you're looking for one, you can put in plutarch.life slash Lycurgus, for example. You can leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, and I would also love to hear any questions you may be having as you struggle with reading or teaching Plutarch, you can contact me at grammaticus.co slash contact or tom at grammaticus.co. Thanks for listening, and I hope I've inspired you to open Plutarch and let his lives affect yours. Thank you.